Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this year, in her centenary year of her birth, we're going to be talking about Muriel Spark. I'm joined by Alan Taylor, the author of a new memoir, Appointment in Arezzo, and Philip Hensher, our chief critic, who is a long-time fan and admirer of Miss Spark. Alan, to start with, can I ask where, I mean, and it's something Philip I think will probably be able to come in on, where do you think Muriel Spark's reputation now stands? Has she had it consolidated since her death, or has it sort of fallen away? I think it slightly fell away in the immediate aftermath of her death, but I like to think it's now on the ascendant again. Reading her work, as I do constantly, but reading it pretty intensely over these past couple of years, I'm more and more convinced of her genius, particularly because of her style. I think her style is evergreen, crisp, clean, modern, hasn't aged at all in, uh, in many senses, unlike, for example, several of her contemporaries. And so I think that uh, her reputation will climb, and I think that she'll endure. Philip, would you assent to that? Well, I don't think that her reputation did fall away, actually. I think that uh, perhaps her sales fell off a, a little bit, but uh, I don't think anybody who anybody stopped admiring her. And I think her, her reputation... I quite agree with Alan. Her, her reputation has held up where the reputation of a lot of her contemporaries has... Uh, has fallen away quite surprisingly. I think the two the two women authors of that generation whose reputation now stands extremely high, Muriel Spark and Elizabeth Taylor, rather surprisingly. And I think both in both cases, it's because they had a very clear idea of what they wanted to do and had really extraordinary grasp of technical of technical matters. If you look at uh, Muriel Sparks' novels, they're always very, very lucid and clear. They light up a world that uh, she has completely understood. But uh, what allows her to do this is a series of very, very clear decisions about how she's going to handle the material. That sort of very beautifully made object is always going to stand up, I believe. Yes, Alan, you talk in your book about, you quote Muriel saying that before she starts a novel, it's almost like kind of tuning up some instruments and she has to take very precise decisions, doesn't she, about... She does, and she also said that she was like a cat waiting to pounce. She would research the, the book in a sort of desultory way, as people do, and then there would come a moment where she knew exactly what she wanted to say, she knew the tone she wanted to have in, in, in writing it, and then she would power into the book. Most of her books were written at a lick. They didn't take many weeks to actually write. Of course, they're very short, but at the same time, there was a sort of intenseness about the way she wrote, and she had a very clear idea about how she was going to write you know she knew uh, what her style was she knew how to form her sentences and as Philip says she knew what she wanted to say she came at writing novels from a very omniscient position read read her novels and you think this narrator is in charge of this book I remember her once being asked by someone in an audience who said did she ever find that a character in her novels arrived and began to take over the novel. And Muriel sort of paused in one of those kind of quite suspenseful pauses and said, but how would that happen? (laughs) And, you know, that kind of sureness about what her position, her her role was. Um, Nabokov has a line, doesn't he? He asked the same question. He said, no, my characters are like galley slaves. (laughs) Well, she was in charge. 
she was in charge and nobody else was going to take responsibility for it. And that tone of voice was very important to it, wasn't it? I mean, there's a kind of spry, dry... Sparkian. Sparkian, exactly. Yes, there was that. And I think she was essentially, really, a comic novelist. So people seem to forget this, or at least some people forget this, that you should approach a spark novel expecting it to be funny. And then, you know, there were depths. There's, I mean, for most kind of non-conoscenti, people would think, you know, her best-known novel is, you know, The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, and it's the sort of... Been a signature book. Is it? Do you? I mean, I'd be interested in what either of you think. Is is that book the centre of her achievement, or is is her reputation kind of slightly? Well, the thing is, when, when Philip was talking about her reputation never really having died or lessened, I do think that too many people went to the Prime Minister Jean Brodie and forgot about a lot of her other work, especially even her later work. But. Um, I think it's a supreme achievement. It's a wonderful book. Um, I read it quite regularly and I'm always taken by it, impressed by it. But I think there are several other books that are as good as that and that people should go to. The Girls of Slender Means, which I think, for example, is a kind of sequel to The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, A Far Cry from Kensington, Loitering with Intent, these sort of realist sort of novels of hers. And then there are the surrealist novels that deserve much more attention than they've had in the past. Uh, like Memento Mori. Or... The Driver's Seat, um, Not to Disturb and the Only Problem. Philip, would you, where would you stand on that? I think Memento Mori is, is a masterpiece. The Driver's Seat, interestingly, I think is a book that's... Um, influenced a lot of novelists over the last uh, 45 or so years and it's the extraordinary clarity of its uh, technical decision it's all in the present tense it doesn't venture into the mind of its main character at all that's clearly a a technical decision and her behavior is fascinating to observe from the outside but we don't really understand it until the the very end it's a very very powerful novel and then i think there's i absolutely agree with uh, with alan about a far cry from kensington i think it's a complete joy and it has that rather unexpected moment of sparky and warmth that you do get in um, in Jean Brodie, but in a completely different context. I think that um, that one of the things about her greatness as a writer, really, is that um, you can't mistake a page of her for anyone else. There's always that um, there's always that uh, clipped wit. There's a, a moment in um, Memento Mori when it says. Uh, Miss Taylor believed Miss Pettigrew to be a kindly woman. In this, Miss Taylor was quite wrong. (laughs) That's always coming up. But the novels are very different one from another, really. I mean, it's it's difficult to believe that the same writer might have written The the Mandelbaum Gate and five years later The the Driver's Seat, but they are both recognisably Muriel Spark. I think that was because... She got to a point where if she thought she had achieved what she wanted to achieve with a particular novel, she wanted to set herself a new challenge. She was never satisfied. She always said that if if a novel wasn't difficult to write, it wasn't worth writing. And I think that she set out to write a different kind of novel and see if she could do it. Territorial rights to take over, as you say, the Mandelbaum Gate, Philip. These are much different from A Far Cry from Kensington and um, The Prime and Miss Jean Brodie. And, and so she would set herself this challenge and sometimes she didn't actually make it work, but she'd given it her best shot. 
Was she was she quite exacting as a critic of her own work? I mean, would she say that one didn't come off? No, <laughs> I don't think she ever said that. I think you'd have had to twist her arm pretty hard to get that out of her. But you can tell that throughout her history that there were novels that gave her problems. There were novels that she didn't write in six weeks that she had to break off and start again or struggle with. One of the things that she would do when uh, she was having problems with a, a novel is that she would check into a hospital in Rome and the nuns there weren't particularly very exacting about how ill you were. And so Muriel would be in this hospital for weeks at an end trying to finish a novel. It's a kind of strange writer's retreat. It turned out what, to be one NHS of... NHS tourism. <laughs> well, the NHS could possibly offer this service to contemporary writers. But, but this it, was a hospital... It's, a, it's something that I've heard many, many novelists say, you know, that what you, what you need is to be looked after and to be bought, brought food and for those trivial domestic decisions to be taken uh, taken away from you i've often i've often thought that if it was if it was slightly comfortable i wouldn't mind going to prison for a couple of months it can be arranged philip it can be arranged <laughs> we would have to be one of those swedish prisons you know comfortable one but i think that she's very good on those small domestic features and and those small domestic situations and on the kind of tyranny of of care obviously in memento mori with the uh, with the ward with all those those grannies but also i think you know the, the girls of slender means i think is uh, is wonderful about institutional life and the the choices that you can make and the choices that institutionalization takes away from you i've often wondered whether you know writing those novels in those um, in that setting actually made her think about communal life which of course is a very good subject for a novel well a lot of her books are set in communal life you know the the abyss of cruise another one where it's set within a convent but it's a, a satire on the watergate affair but muriel herself was not at all a domestic animal she was interested as you say in domestic details but she herself i doubt could have boiled an egg or even set a kettle boiling. She wasn't really interested in these things. Her mother had told her that if you never learn to do something like ironing or hoovering or whatever, then no one will ever ask you to do it. And Muriel was assiduous in not learning how to do these things. Well, I mean, this is me to turn briefly to Muriel's own personality. Philip, you picked out that note of warmth in the books sometimes. I mean, you know, I, reading her short stories... I thought, you know, there's something a bit like Evelyn War in here, but it doesn't have that kind of absolute black-heartedness that he has. And, you know, you describe Alan saying that charm was something she valued very highly and that you found her an immensely kind of charming, mm. engaging sort of person. And yet she has a sort of reputation for being ruthless in pursuit of her art and rather kind of cloistered and prickly and spiky. I mean, how would those two sides of her character reconcile themselves? Well, most good novelists that I've met are ruthless in pursuit of their art and would probably murder to continue to do what they want to do. Charm was a word that she used often and it was a quality she valued highly in individuals. But she was ruthless in pursuit of her art, but it didn't make her personally ruthless. I think that she was very warm-hearted, she was extremely generous, she was very welcoming, she opened the doors of her house to anybody who she just met. Um, and well, the, your, your book describes how you went to interview her for the yeah. newspaper you then worked for and hard on its heels followed an invitation to house sit for her. For a month and, you know, with my family and she, she was very accommodating. She found out at the last minute that neither my then wife or I drove and she bought two bicycles for us so that we could get to 
shops, the nearest of which was about three miles away. She'd neglected to find out whether these bikes had brakes, which they didn't have, so they were highly dangerous things to have. But that was typical of her. Lots of people who met her and knew her were given extravagant presents. She was a very difficult person to buy a meal for. She was always um, on top of the waiters to make sure that she paid the bill. So uh, I don't know where this kind of coldness, cruelty comes from. I think the best word to describe the way she writes and writes about her characters is, is unsentimentally. That's what she writes. And, you know, she was born and bred on the border ballads and they're forever dispatching people just with a kind of swish of the hand. How important was her Scottishness? I mean, this might come into your... Your view as well, Philip, as a sort of someone who reads her. Well, I wonder if Philip sort of even thinks of her as Scottish. Do you, Philip? Yes, I think I do, actually. I mean, I, I'm not sure that it's, as, it's necessarily as specific as that, but I do think that in most of her books, in not, not very many of her books does she, does she write about Scotland. Most, I would say, I haven't totted it up, but I would say most of her books are are set in London, I guess. But there's always a sense of somebody arriving in London, living in some kind of temporary accommodation, making, trying to make sense of the world that they're in, whether in Girls of Slender Means or The Ballad of Peckham Rye, which is a book I adore, or Far Cry from, from Kensington. People coming into an established setting and seeing what it's like. And often there's... A, a sense of somebody with a particular sense, a particular sense of humour, a particular sensibility, which isn't that of the people they're observing. Maybe it's a Roman Catholic thing. Maybe it's a Scottish thing. But I do think that the the turn of phrase, the the slightly kind of crisp judgment, is that of a not just of a, a Scottish point of view but a particular sort of Edinburgh point of view, I would say, from, you know, from my, my observation. Well, I think that's spot on. She always said that she was Scottish by formation and corrected people who described her, say, as an English novelist. But then she would add, but, you know, I'm, I'm Edinburgh by formation. And, and even deeper than that, Morningside by formation. You're right, too, about the sense of arrivals of people. For her generation and even my generation to come to London was the big deal and uh, you would make that trip and uh, you were either a success or not. I don't think that pertains to the same degree now. But what does pertain uh, now and in the sort of Muriel Spark sense is that if you were to go this afternoon at, say, three o'clock to Jenner's Tea Room in Jenner's department store in Princess Street in Edinburgh, you would see 300 women who are all eminently Sparkians. They dress like a, a Muriel Spark characters, they talk like Muriel Spark characters, and they have the same sensibility as Muriel Spark characters, the same unsentimental, go get em world view. And their view of men is very interesting. They don't really pander to their husbands or partners or whatever, and they can be brutal in their assessment of Well, them. she had this one very unsuccessful marriage from which she took away her name. She, she always said that she married a man called Sidney Oswald Spark, and she always said that if only she'd sort of realised that his initials were a warning. <laughs> I did ask her once, why didn't she uh, revert to her family name when she uh, separated from him and divorced them? And she said, well, you know, would you rather be Camberg or Spark? Spark was a name that seemed, she thought, to suit her personality. And she thought, well, at least I've got something out of this marriage. 
She also had a son out of the marriage as well. But yeah, she, it's a difficult the, relationship. But, but, but the surname was, was the most important thing. She lived, I mean, for most of the later part of her life, she lived in Tuscany and she lived with another woman. There was a lot of speculation about the nature of their relationship. Was it a romantic relationship? I mean, Muriel, you write in your book, had her own half of the house. Well, she, she did, but then I think, again, writers would tend to have, if you've got 20 rooms in a house, you can have half of the house. And her part of the house was the, the warmest, most modernised part of the house. The person she lived with, the person who owned the house, was her friend Penelope Jardine, a sculptor and artist. And Penelope still lives in the house in, in her mid-80s. Was it a romantic relationship? I have no way of knowing, but I don't think so. I think they were just simpatico. They were two people who got on very well. I think they admired each other. And Penelope could do things that Muriel couldn't do. This endured for well over 30 years. And uh, they were a formidable pair, actually. I have, um, I have no means of, uh, of making any comment on this. And, um, and on the whole, nothing that I've uh, ever heard about their relationship makes me think that it was anything but uh, what, what Alan says. But perhaps slightly mischievously, I, I will say that, uh, that her novels do, maybe without intending, have a sort of what we would now call a queer sensibility. And um, they do speak, I would say, to gay and lesbian people very strongly. I remember after 25 years ago, the BBC did an absolutely marvellous dramatisation of uh, Memento Mori with Maggie Smith in the uh, Mrs Pettigrew part. And I remember very clearly that for weeks afterwards, you could find gay men quoting lines from it in the <laughs> bars. And actually, there are quite a lot of there are quite a lot of of novels where I think there are there, there are moments that just seem to to speak to to gay and lesbian people. Even um, the girls of slender means and the the opening scene of the driver's seat with her tearing the clothes off when she discovers that uh, that they're they're stain proof. She yes. won't wear them because they're stain proof, and I've seen I've seen this um, puzzle all sorts of readers, but not gays and lesbians. They understand that absolutely. Ah, uh, well, that is well. Maybe you should elucidate, but that's something that always interested me. And I did say to her, I said, you know, I talked about you know how her novels did particularly appeal to gay and lesbian people, and she just said, "How so? <laughs> how so?" As if she was oblivious to this but she must have known Philip I mean she and 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 her set in Italy there were many of her friends there were gay and um, she saw them regularly and often and uh, was charmed by them the very fact that she continued to see them after 20 or so years was was a mark of how much she liked them there was a painter Geoffrey Smart and his partner Hermes there was a, a guy called Alain Vidal Naquette who had been a French representative of the United Nations and his partner Ben. When I was out there, I saw them often and uh, Muriel regarded them as among her favourite friends. The comparison that I would make from an earlier generation was actually Ivy Compton Burnett. And Ivy Compton Burnett similarly lived with a woman for many years. No one could... No one could dis- decide whether they were in a romantic relationship. It was much discussed. And for, for long, for many, many decades, her social circle was mainly gay men and lesbians who saw something 
it's difficult to describe. Camp doesn't give the right flavour. Something, something kind of clipped, something decisive, something disillusioned about the work and are sort of drawn to it like as uh, outsiders sometimes are drawn to each other. And I think exactly the same thing happened with Muriel's part. You wouldn't necessarily expect either person to be to see that appeal as at the core of their meaning, but it is there. It's very decisive, I think. Well, I'm afraid I think we're out of time. I should say anyone who's inspired by this to read Muriel Spark should know that the complete novels are being reissued in a wonderful edition by Polygon, all curated and edited by Alan, and Alan's book, Appointment in Arezzo, his memoir of his friendship with Muriel Spark, is also out now from the same publisher. Philip Hencher, Alan Taylor, thank you very much. And I'd like to make you aware of a brand new subscription offer we've got going for anyone who admires the great writer Stephen Pinker. For just £12, you can subscribe to The Spectator for three months, receive a copy of Mr Pinker's new book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism and Progress, and tickets to see him in discussion with me, Sam Leith, at a special Spectator event this February. 